you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 46 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Well, Mark, you will recall last week we had a wonderful interview with Associate Professor Neve Howland from UCD, Mm. who's written an incredible book about barristers in Ireland. Mm. The book has been launched since and I know it is going down a bomb. Yeah. What do you think? Well, it's a great book and uh, I think the uh, the launch party went very well. I really enjoyed our chat with Neve. Well, today it is our great pleasure to welcome to the studio Michael O'Flaherty, who is currently the head of the European Union's Fundamental Rights Agency. He's a proud Galway man. Uh, what a CV Michael has. He initially qualified as a solicitor, but then ditched the law to become a priest, a Catholic priest in the late 80s and early 90s. He then went on to study international relations and human rights and having served at various overseas postings, uh, some of the high spots in terms of international conflicts over the years, he became then the head of this fundamental rights agency. And among other things, he's adjunct professor of human rights at Maynooth University. What has this man not done? I'm really looking forward to this interview, Mark. Yeah, he's had a role in so many agencies that have effectively been trying to work out how to implement human rights on the ground. I think he's really, he's one of these people, it's surprising he's not better known in this country because he's really... He should be better known. Oh no, this is going to be a great interview. Before we go any further, Mark, let's remind our listeners about the Wild Atlantic Law. Absolutely, yes. So it's the Legal Legal Ideas Festival that's going to be held in Ennis Timon on the 25th and 26th of October. And if the lineup of luminaries such as Frank Clark, Jason McHugh, Keelan Gallagher... Uh, doesn't appeal. There's also going to be an appearance of the Fifth Court wow. team where we are going to interview Mr. Justice Gerard Hogan on the 50th anniversary We're of the We're taking Mugida the show judgment. on the oh, we road. We certainly are. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Electric picnic first, Wild Atlantic law next, and who knows where we'll oh be after that. Oh my God, it's going to, we're just, the, the, the sky's the limit, man. The sky's the limit. Okay, well said. And there's still a few places left for people if they there want are. to book. Yeah, book. I think so, yeah. yeah. So, okay, okay, very good. Okay, well, let's start with some cases now from the Decisis website. Our first case concerns a dispute in relation to a bank loan. This was the case of Curran versus Ulster Bank Ireland DAC, a decision of Mr Justice Connor Dignam. In this case, the plaintiffs issued proceedings against a bank arising from issues concerning a loan. You might explain those, Mark, uh, where there was a background of litigation between the parties and obviously a dispute between the parties. The bank sought to strike out the proceedings on a number of grounds, including the fact that the plaintiffs were bankrupt in England. I mean, that must, must have been a factor. Indeed it was. Yeah, and the... Well, the curious thing was, as often happens with with uh, loans, a receiver was appointed, there was litigation, but then the plaintiffs, the borrowers, issued proceedings against the bank and the bank, because of the history of litigation, basically brought an application to strike it out on the grounds of abusive process and various other issues. But one of the issues was that the plaintiffs were bankrupt in England. Um, and the judge, uh, Mr Justice Dignam, looked at this and said, well, yes, they cannot maintain these proceedings uh, while they are bankrupt in England. However, he wasn't going to strike out the proceedings on those grounds because it would be open to their official receiver in bankruptcy to maintain proceedings in Ireland. So he put a stay on the proceedings to give them an opportunity 
to uh, reconstitute the proceedings in a manner that could potentially um, be valid. Okay, very good, very good. Uh, well, next, moving on to case number two. And this is actually case number two and case number three, because there's, there's two takes on this. Last week, we had two takes on a certain case as well. I remember the case of the principal right. from Gorey. So uh, this week, we're going to have uh, two looks at the case of O'Keefe versus the Commissioner of Ongarda Siakana. This is a decision of Mr. Justice Simons in the High Court. Uh, this is a very curious case, Mark. The applicant was being arrested by a member of Ongarda Siakana when the arresting Garda was bitten by his dog, a Belgian shepherd. I've heard of German shepherds. I've never heard of a Belgian yeah, I, shepherd. I haven't heard of one either, but okay, that, well, that's dog, what it says in the I judgment. Presume, I presume he was a biggie anyway, a big yeah. dog. So the district court ordered that the dog be destroyed. Wow. Yeah. Uh, this was challenged by the applicant, presumably because he wanted to save his dog. However, he had the best tradition of the law. He had to advocate that this was based on a technical ground, that it was slightly premature. Is that it? Well, it said he hadn't had proper notice of the district court hearing. And so the district court does have the power to to order the destruction of a dog. Um, it's one of the rare cases when um, a barrister gets to uh, appeal against capital punishment that the judicial review in this case was to to challenge that the particular decision. Um, Did the district judge wear a black cat? I, the, the judgment does not recite. Okay. um, We shouldn't laugh about this. This is very serious, actually. And I'm sure there's dog lovers out there who are appalled by this. But anyway. But the the curious thing was that it didn't seem to be very difficult for the High Court to to quash the decision to to destroy the dog on the grounds that um, that there hadn't been sufficient notice of the hearing. But what the issue really was, was what happens to the dog in the meantime. And the guards who were the, the respondents in the case were very keen that the dog be detained in kennels pending the, um, the remitted case. and the Taken the, away from the owner, effectively. Well, kept away from the owner. I think the yes. dog was already in kennels and the, the, dog, the owner wanted the dog returned. Um, but obviously because of the circumstances of the, the arresting guards having been bitten, I think the guardy were very keen that the dog not be returned to the owner. But so I mean, then, sorry to, to annoy you in relation to this, Mark, because you're, you're a great man for detail in these cases. I mean, obviously, the guard being bitten by the dog was horrific, and I'm sure mm. a very serious injury occurred. And as I said, we don't know what a Belgian shepherd is like, but I'm sure it's not a million miles away from a German shepherd. So it's a substantial dog. But I mean, this was the ultimate sanction. I mm-hmm. mean, he went right to the top here. I mean, the sanction he gave was as serious as a sanction as you could give. Mm you know, to put the dog down. Yeah, well, and that's why it was set aside because the, the, the court felt that the owner hadn't had sufficient notice of the case. But the, the issue then was what happens to the dog in the meantime? And the first judgment concerned whether or not the dog should be kept in kennels pending the remitted case to the district court. But then a further hearing occurred because the plaintiff wanted to appeal that judgment to the Court of Appeal and was looking for a stay on the High Court judgment. And Mr. Justice Simon said, no, the, clearly it's in everybody's interests, as he said, literally including the dogs, that this matter be determined as expeditiously <laughs> as possible. He refused the stay and um, so the matter would be t- t- remitted back to the district court. So it was going possible. back to the district court exactly. and again it would fall to the district court to decide what was going to happen to the dog. Exactly, yeah. Okay, all right. Kind of distressing enough, really, isn't it? Okay, back shortly with Michael O'Flaherty. Silence in the fifth court. So we are delighted to be joined in the studio today by Michael O'Flaherty, who has a very interesting background that we will go into in some detail. 
Having graduated in law from UCD, he then practiced as a solicitor, I think, for a short time before then finding a vocation training to be a priest. Having been a priest for a number of years, then became a human rights lawyer and has worked in an extraordinary number of places, including Geneva, Zagreb, Sarajevo, Sierra Leone, uh, for various UN agencies, has been professor of human rights law in the University of Nottingham, NUIG in Maynooth, but he is now the head of the EU's Fundamental Rights Agency in Vienna. And so we'll be talking about some what that role involves in a minute. So, Michael, thanks very much for joining us in the studio. That's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but if you can tell us what was it that made you want to leave the law to join the priesthood? And what was it that made you want to leave the priesthood to go back to the law or to, to human rights law in, in particular? I don't know if, 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 that, if that's a podcast in itself. Uh, I think it probably would be. Uh, it would be a boring podcast. Uh, the, um, it's about being useful. Uh, right. And at different phases of your life, you interrogate yourself as how you can be useful. Hmm. And that, that, in a way, is how my direction you know, kept changing. I um, left school. I had no interest in going into business, which is what my family was in. I, I was fascinated by this invisible cobweb, uh, which is law, uh, mm. which somehow put order on our societies. And I thought I could think of nothing then more interesting than to get to grips with that and to immerse myself in it and devote my life to that. Um, but also, uh, I was a Catholic. It, it, Ireland was then a profoundly Catholic country. And as you continue to see how you could be useful, it made a lot of sense for me to um, channel it in that direction. Uh, you know, this was the time of Archbishop Oscar Romero, uh, priests being martyred in Latin America. Uh, it seemed a very, a very natural So it was uh, kind transition. of liberation theology that the, appealed to you? To some extent, and, and more just this, these priests were on the front line of doing good and making a difference for the better in societies. So I did that for a small number of years. But I guess you know, the, the work I found myself doing uh, didn't somehow meet what I was looking for. And there were some personal things as well. And uh, I went back to law again, human rights. I had mm. had the great good fortune when I was a, a, a solicitor's apprentice in Galway uh, of doing night courses at UCG, mm. where uh, the great Professor Kevin Boyle uh, had just established the Irish Centre for Human Rights together with Denny Driscoll, who's still alive and well. This is when you were still an undergraduate? Yes, uh, uh, no, when I was do, uh, uh, training as a solicitor, I okay. was doing mm. the apprenticeship in Galway. Right. And um, I had, so my first exposure to human rights was in Galway. Uh, it was thrilling. These mm. were the best teachers you could ever have the privilege of finding. They arranged an internship at the UN mm. for me, which uh, even further deepened uh, interest. And then when, for the various reasons, I left the priesthood, it was a very natural thing to go back to uh, human rights and to the UN, where I'd had this fascinating experience as a very young, impressionable man. Indeed. And we, I took it from there. I've spent my whole life in the, in the area and uh, it's been very challenging, very difficult, enormously rewarding and the greatest privilege you could imagine. And you mind me asking, uh, when you were a priest, I think you were a priest for about five years, is that yes, right? A bit less, but right. quite and, short. And were you in, in practice, I don't know if that's the word, but <laughs> were, were you wor working as a curate or a parish priest in Ireland or were you was there, were you involved in a, uh, a religious order? No, or? no, it was all, it was the Diocese of Galway mm -hmm. uh, and very varied. I am, um, I was a curate for a very happy year mm. in a rural parish. Uh, I then became a school chaplain for a few years. Not my finest hour. I, I wasn't a natural. Uh, we're dealing with teenage teenagers, I don't think. But also, at the same time, I was doing a lot of work with an organisation that no longer exists, the Irish Commission for Justice and Peace, 
At least I don't think it exists anymore, which was very prominent back then in promoting awareness of international human rights law and how it would apply. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, How how human rights would apply in an Irish setting. And Mm -hmm. uh, so it was uh, in that context, for instance, we arranged the NGO interventions to the first ever review by the UN of an Irish human rights report under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Okay. Uh, that was the first of a, an, of a type of an engagement by Irish NGOs, which has grown stronger and stronger over the years and is, is very lively today. And I, I promise I won't stay on the, the, the issue of the priesthood, but just um, you, you talked about your the inspiration of the sort of South American kind of yeah. liberation theologists. I mean, did you find that your work within the church in Ireland frustrated that ambition or was that kind of inspiration something you were able to follow while you were within the priesthood? Well, the work I was doing with the Irish Commission for Justice and Peace was very close to that. I felt it was very rewarding, very fulfilling, very useful. And uh, ultimately, I left for a bundle of reasons, some of which were sure. personal yeah, and which yeah. had nothing to do with the, these types of issues. Sure. OK, so after you left the priesthood, you then went to Amsterdam and did a degree in international relations. And then from 93, you were involved in setting up a centre for human rights in um, Geneva, but with work in Zagreb and Sarajevo. And I think that was right in the middle of the Balkan conflict in the, the, the breakup of Yugoslavia when, I mean, we'll all remember issues like uh, Srebrenica, yes. um, really extraordinary, extraordinary times, the first proper bloodshed in Europe since World War II. Um, how involved were you on the ground? Well, the war was hideous, uh, mm. absolutely hideous uh, and very complex with multiple parties right across a number of countries of the former Yugoslavia. I was mainly concentrated on Bosnia, uh, where I had two roles. Uh, one was the I had the extraordinary privilege of supporting the mandate of the then UN Special Rapporteur for former Yugoslavia, who was Tadeusz Mazowiecki, who had been the first uh, post-communist prime minister of Poland. And it was such a privilege to work with one of these great European leaders of the transition from communism. Uh, but my other role was to set up uh, the UN's first human rights field office uh, in Bosnia, which was no, uh, was quite a task because there was almost no culture of such uh, operations in the UN at that time. There had been one in Cambodia, one in El Salvador. That was it. So we had to invent the profession as we went along. And we, we, we stumbled many, many times. I mean, some, we, sometimes we didn't know why we were doing what we were doing. What, what exactly was the role of the agency? Was it information yeah. gathering? I mean, you, it wasn't you know, a role, legal role as such, was role, it? Or? The role, even the role itself mm. wasn't terribly clear. Mm. The UN realised there were human rights abuses going on and so it deployed human rights observers. One of the most important functions was to gather data and get it up the line uh, so that it would inform the debates in, let's say, the Security Council, so that the responses of the United Nations would have a human rights quality to them. And uh, we had some success in this, which ultimately led to uh, the uh, the special tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, which led to a big focus on uh, sexual violence uh, as, a, as a, one of the more egregious violations at war, in wartime. We were certainly not doing something that became very important later, capacity building. And uh, we often didn't know what we were doing, frankly. Mm. I, I remember going to visit a professor in the University of Sarajevo, going into his um, window smashed office, freezing cold, everybody wearing coats. Uh, and um, two things about that interview. Well, first, the, the one about not knowing what we're doing. I think, what questions will I ask this man? So I'm a lawyer. He's a professor of law. I remember asking him, so how is the administration of justice in in Sarajevo at the moment, Professor? And he burst out laughing and he was quite right. I mean, he 
put his hand to the smashed window. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, as if to say, we have a lot more worrying things to deal with in Sarajevo right now than the administration of justice. Uh, so it was a good lesson. Um, there were many such incidents and Bosnia, in terms of human rights uh, fieldwork, was a stepping stone towards the development of what is today a highly sophisticated profession, if you will, a, a bundle of skill sets, which is delivering real value in terms of standing up for people and making sure that they don't get overlooked in the big politics of conflict. And does that inform sort of war crimes trials and yes. that kind of thing? I mean, yes. you, you're, you're, the information you gather then is used right. in terms of prosecutions. That's right. That was um, that began, mm. at least my first experience of that was in former Yugoslavia. It became much more uh, prominent in the work I subsequently did in Sierra Leone in West Africa, mm. where our evidence was directly used. And I was a witness in all the trials, including that of the Liberian president, Charles Taylor. Uh, and that was a very powerful vindication of what we were doing. It was a, a demonstration to everybody and to us uh, that this was not a waste of time. It was a worthy and a valuable investment. Michael, sorry, just just going back to kind of your experience in Srebrenica and, and you said subsequently with Charles Taylor in Liberia. What lessons were learned then and what are at play currently in the world today? Well, um, Srebrenica, you mentioned Srebrenica. We didn't succeed with Srebrenica. There was a massacre in Srebrenica. There was one in in, in, in a number of those enclaves, uh, those protection enclaves in Bosnia. So they are actually a legacy of failure. They, they were a disaster. Uh, but that's where the lesson lies. Uh, the lesson lies in the extent to which the um, voice shouting out for human rights can be very much on the periphery. And we have to get much smarter, much more strategic in ensuring that we're listened to. And my boss in former Yugoslavia, uh, Mazowiecki, the man I mentioned earlier, he quit in protest uh, at the... Um, was David Owen there as well? Have yeah, I a memory yeah, of him? Correct, yes. He was, he was in one of the phases of the peace process. And of course, the peace process was going on at a remove from us. Uh, we were out there in the field every day and we weren't direct actors in that. Uh, but uh, ultimately, we ended up with a peace outcome in Bosnia-Herzegovina, which is has some very strong human rights elements in it. It's by no means perfect, but with all its imperfection, it somehow has held together just about until today, uh, including because of uh, strong human rights provisions. Can I go back to your your laughing professor there? You, you, yeah. you obviously asked the question. But it was an the, ironic laugh. Well, I know, I, 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 I realised that. But I mean, something I'm just curious about, you know, obviously he, he said that we have other things to worry about, but to what extent in a war zone can ordinary life continue such as policing, yeah. courts and that kind of thing? I mean, presumably there are parts of a country where those institutions remain in place and then when the, the conflict kind of reaches those parts, then it all breaks down. I mean, yeah. do they sort of come and go? There's multiple elements to responding to that question. One is exactly what you said, that a conflict doesn't absorb an entire country in any given moment where the horror is everywhere all at once. Mm. It's not like that. And there are some bits of any country at war that will be largely unaffected throughout mm. the period of the conflict. Um, but that said, in the conflict zones themselves, one of the striking things is the extent to which the threads of civil society prove much stronger than people expect. Um, uh, everywhere I've worked, uh, I've been deeply impressed by the way local civil society has, to the extent they're not expelled, has stayed on there working uh, often extraordinarily bravely. Uh, I remember once going into a rebel-occupied town in Sierra Leone and I was handed over a notebook, a school copybook, uh, with information on atrocities that had been assiduously kept at great risk to himself by a teacher, a local teacher, for the purpose of getting it out so that the world could hear the story. This story could be repeated any number of times. Mm. Uh, faith communities uh, I've seen remain very resilient in that context. And by the way, they they have been and often are great 
uh, partners in seeking to do human rights work in these crazy environments. Uh, uh, the um, situations vary from place to place, but it is it, it, to the extent that they're allowed to continue to work, they can be uh, really very important. There's Women's organizations so There's a well. sort of moral center in religious groups, effectively, yeah. that kind of keeps society going? Or uh, I, 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 You'd have to ask them. Right, okay. <laughs> uh, but, but, but women's groups as well. Uh, mm. uh, again, women are the drivers, the vectors of change and of um, principle mm. in, in many of these crazy situations. And again, this is just an ob- observation from, repeated, uh, from repeatedly being in such places. Um, does life continue as normal in the places where the conflict isn't consuming all the energy? Yes and no. Um, the, the, um, remember, there's always going to be a massive displacement. So the, the, the population is going to be off kilter. Uh, any place that's not in the conflict is going to be housing an enormous number of people who have fleed, so-called internally displaced people. And that brings all those issues of humanitarian response, uh, access to schools and to services, which then has an impact for the local population. There will commonly be a state of emergency. Uh, and so under the provisions of the state of emergency, maybe, for example, the administration of justice isn't necessarily going to work as it would in the normal times. And keep in mind that if we're in the middle of a conflict, except in the context of an outright foreign aggression, uh, you're probably in a, in, a, in a society or in a setting where there were deep problems already and they will inevitably be impacting for what we might call normal life. Can I bring you forward then to your more recent role in the Fundamental Rights Agency yeah. of the EU? Now, it seems to me that there are so many different kind of sources of fundamental rights at this stage. We're obviously all familiar with the UN Charter of Human Rights, the European Convention on Human mm. Rights. Within Ireland, obviously, we are, uh, you know, our fundamental rights derive from the yeah. Constitution. Yeah. And then the fundamental rights of the EU derive from, is it the Declaration or the, the Charter, the Char- Charter, sorry, of, fundamental Charter of, of Fundamental Rights? My understanding is that it informs EU law rather than domestic law as it currently stands. No, 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 no. It, it has effect at the national level in areas of EU competence. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 has, it has immediate national relevance uh, where the matter is, in, is a matter that with which the EU is engaged, but otherwise no. So, which so is why it's a very difficult instrument to um, yeah. uh, to convey because it ha- it, it has this uh, this limited remit. Just to clarify it for the purpose of our listeners, Michael, the difference between fundamental rights, obviously within the context of yeah. the EU, and human rights. Can you explain right. that? I mean, it's it's it's, it's, it's a hard one. It's, it's a hard a, one. It's a deeply confusing one. Yes. Uh, particularly for somebody like me who spent his life working in human rights and suddenly has to use the term fundamental rights. It, look, it's straightforward enough. Uh, uh, fundamental rights are human rights as they engage within the EU competency space. And they will commonly look exactly like a human right. They just they just have this different legal characterization. Uh, and the, the human rights instrument uh, of the EU has the title, and by the way, in the original, in an early draft, it was called the Charter of Human Rights. But at a certain point in the drafting process, for, which re- for reasons which are historical, uh, it, 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 it came to be fundamental rights. Okay, and just going with the EU and fundamental rights, and that, as you say, they're the guiding principles for, let's say, EU directives, which have had major impact on Irish society over the years. I mean, the EU, it's very impressive, really, isn't it? The the, the fundamental rights, you know, the the, the move towards that. I mean, we see these progressive European directives all the time, which have added greatly, I think, to our domestic legislation and to the rights that the citizens of Ireland enjoy. Sure. Yeah, I've been impressed by myself as an outsider to the EU by the extent to which its work is 
is, let's say human rights, it's easier, human rights driven. Uh, I've seen a serious attention to it within bodies like the uh, European Commission, uh, which has impressed me, uh, in, in at least in, certainly in some sectors. And you're right, it's, there's been a very progressive body of, of law uh, uh, developing. GDPR, to take for an example, uh, a, a law I've been discussing with people today in Dublin, uh, which, is, which is the global leader. It's the global uh, standard setter in the area of the protection of privacy. Uh, but by no means perfect. We have a long way to go. Um, I talk about the impressive commitment to rights, uh, but uh, there is many, just like in national governance, there's many parts of EU administration that that haven't quite yet come on board, haven't fully understood what fundamental rights has to say to their territory. So, so there's more to come. That's really good. But I mean, <laughs> like I, I think, for example, something like employment rights, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Dis- disabled employees and the yes. rights they got, and that all emanated with our colleagues over in Europe. No, I, that came I, from I, Brussels to Dublin and as a result improved their lot immeasurably. Yes, but it didn't come from Brussels, it came from the EU, which is all of us. Yeah. It's all the 27 member states that generate these laws. So Ireland plays its own role in the in the, in, in the design and the architecture. Mm. And it's really important that we don't say Brussels did this, Brussels did that, because when we don't like it, we can, we can say, well, that's them, we'll ignore it, we'll do it, go our own way. It's us. Which Europe is, a is us. They made in the UK. They tended to treat it as if it was a, some kind of external agency when they didn't, didn't seem to appreciate they were part of it. Well, certainly, that's the way the media very yeah. often portray yeah. it. And uh, it's not it's not just Brussels; it's also Strasbourg. Mm. Remember the extent to which uh, the European mm. Convention on Human Rights has had been a force for the good in Ireland. Look mm. at how some of the most important areas of law and policy in Ireland have changed as on the result of uh, judgments that came out of the European Court of Human Rights. So th- that's another dimension of protecting mm. human rights in Europe, in this country, that needs to be given due weight. Sure. Well, there's another city involved uh, here, Vienna. That's where your home office is based. That's correct. Isn't that right, Michael? And and will you just tell me about the kind of the job of work you're doing over sure. there? Well, we're, we're essentially the human rights advisory body of the EU when we're in that EU competency space. We have a pretty big toolbox. We're about 15, 16 years old now. And over that time, we've developed a lot of ways to carry out the responsibility. One is that we're the world's largest gatherer of empirical data on the lived experience of people at risk in our societies. It's on the basis of our surveys that we have a very close understanding of patterns of, let's say, discrimination against Roma and travellers. Discrimination, or not so much discrimination, as harassment against Jews, anti-Semitism, uh, of the situation of the LGBTI communities uh, and, 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 and many other groups. That data then informs policy. There are a number of important policies uh, of the EU on exactly the topics I mentioned, and I could include as well anti-racism and a number of others, which is built uh, on, the, on the, the evidence generated by the agency. But we also do the tough uh, empirical research to figure out what's working and what's broken and what needs to be fixed and how it could be fixed. Uh, we're very much engaged there in the context, for example, of the regulation of artificial intelligence. Um, um, but also in working with groups such as the ones I mentioned earlier, we um, convene people uh, to have the conversations they need to have. I'll give you an example. We've spoken here the last few minutes about the UN, the Council of Europe, the EU. Um, they all talk about human rights in Europe. They don't have many opportunities to talk to each other about human rights in Europe. And they need to if we're to have joined up initiatives that will make a, a more impactful uh, difference for our societies. And so we create those spaces. And I could go on. Michael, could I, can, can I just ask you, arising from that, and this is just something I'm curious about, 
I mean, it sounds like the work you're doing is very altruistic. I mean, obviously you're doing it, you're an agency, you're set up and you're doing it. But your your motivation, it's it's highly moral, I would have thought, and it's trying to improve the lot of people all the time. And then you have to transfer your ideas and your learning and what you've developed in your agency and transfer it over to nation states that come together, you know, collectively in the European Union. And they are all motivated by self-interest. So this is the bit that fascinates me. This is sort of very progressive policies. And yet you have to transfer it over to a decision making body that is peopled by various different states that are acting out of Mm self-interest. So how do you marry the two? Well, the key starting to answer you is to challenge the idea that this is a moral endeavour. It's it's a law endeavour. It's it's a norm-based endeavour. And uh, all we are doing is um, supporting member states and the EU institutions to honour their pre-existing legal commitments. And that's the beginning of how we motivate them to make a change. But that in itself is not enough either. We have to convince uh, that the human rights way is the better way. It's the better way for our societies. And uh, indeed, that's another focus of our research, demonstrating that if you embed human rights in your national security policies, to take one of the more challenging examples, you'll have better national security. And again, with a bit of investment, it's not difficult to provide the evidence uh, in these contexts. And there's a third dimension still, which the whole human rights community is engaged with right now, which is how do we, in a more convincing manner, transmit our messages? Uh, We've acknowledged that we've been a bit dry Uh, We've been um, issuing very long, uh, deep reports uh, that don't exactly thrill and that don't engage, you know, don't reach into the heart or hit the Mm. point of energy. Uh, And so we're investing in framing our messages in new ways, invoking more values than just fairness uh, and, and justice, but also values that matter to many people like security. Yeah. Uh, and and um, learning from other areas of life, uh, how you transmit messages through stories. Uh, look at how here in Ireland, the uh, marriage equality referendum was in large part successful uh, through storytelling, allowing people to tell their own stories. And so we need to learn from these types of context also for the transmission of what are, uh, I accept this, often not very welcome messages. And can I just ask, just to, to clarify, the, the Fundamental Rights Agency it doesn't have a kind of policing or decision-making role. It's more of a, a sort of a, a data gathering and consultancy sort of information role. Is that, is that um, correct? Yes and no. Mm. Uh, it, it, it so it's not so much a legal agency. No, as a, it, 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 it has no judicial powers. Mm. It, it has no sort of formal monitoring powers. We cannot subpoena anybody to do anything. We cannot march into your premises and walk away with your documents. Nothing like that. But that's in part because we have the Council of Europe, European Court of Human Rights. It was very important to create an entity that would not be seen as somehow competing with Mm. some of the institutions of the Council of Europe. But we have more than enough tools in our toolbox to be useful. Um, So, for example, one of the things we do, I said we're the world's largest data gatherer. And this is not just survey stuff to um, Mm. inform policies. It's also practice good practice, bad practice that we can then share across the member states. Um, I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, we wanted to help Greece persuade other EU member states to take uh, adolescent children, uh, uh, migrant children, excuse me, to ease the burden on Greece of housing and caring for the huge numbers of of migrant children arriving on its frontiers. And uh, in large part, we were able to successfully relocate couple of thousand children through demonstrating to the member states that it wasn't quite so scary as it looked. Others had done it and here's how they had done it. And we quite literally put one country in conversation with another country to reduce the uh, the, the levels of concern uh, and uh, to persuade that, that it, this can be done. And when fundamental rights are being argued 
before the Court of Justice? Do you, do you don't have any kind of amicus curiae role or anything like that? Or, or, or do you? Yeah, we're beginning to have one. We were invited in a, in a recent case to um, present evidence uh, in, in a particular context. Uh, and uh, I'd be very happy if this becomes a practice sure. uh, also a, a, at the European Court of Human Rights. Just Michael, you wear, look, I mean, you wear a number of very impressive hats and one of them is also Professor of Human Rights at Maynooth University, I believe. Adjunct, adjunct. Adjunct, adjunct. Okay, but I mean, obviously you keep an eye on human rights in an Irish context. How do you think we're doing on human rights over here in (laughs) dear old Ireland? Um, We've come a long way. Uh, I remember... Uh, I'm getting old now and I remember when uh, Ireland ratified the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the then Attorney General said, of course, we're only doing this pour encourager les autres. Hmm. We don't actually need it. Uh, And that wouldn't be said today. Uh, And uh, I see an openness to human rights, uh, to the arguments and the discourse of human rights that I wouldn't have expected a few years ago. So I think we should give credit for that. Human rights is measured not just in the record of a government, it's also measured in the extent to which the state is willing to invest in key human rights institutions. We have IREC, the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, which is an impressive body. It's it's respected right across the continent for the work that it does. Uh, I could go on, the list is long. We have a thriving civil society. We have a highly vibrant, uh, very vocal civil society that's also very expert in its areas. I was talking today with civil society in the area of um, uh, GDPR, for example, and they're highly competent uh, professionals. And uh, so, so look, in terms of, um, I, and I want to say one last thing, I, I don't rank countries. I think it's really unhelpful mm-hmm. because every country has its successes. Every country has its challenges. And Ireland is no different in that regard. I was thinking as you spoke there, Michael, about a very dodgy election slogan, a lot done and more <laughs> to do. I'm just wondering, like more to do, what do you see at the moment? I mean, obviously there's a humanitarian crisis emerging from the war in Ukraine and we've had a lot of people coming to our shores. And I think the government in good faith have tried to do their best to try and address that. But there's weaknesses. But we also have people from all over the world, conflict situations who are coming to Ireland and we as a country are engaging with them direct provision, issues like that. Do they concern you still? Yes, of course. Um, If I could allow me to answer your question more broadly and not just Ireland. Uh, Europe should be ashamed uh, of the way it's responded to the arrival of asylum seekers from across the world. Uh, I've just come from Lampedusa. I was there a couple of days ago uh, to observe for myself the thousands of people uh, being washed up. Well, they're being rescued, actually, Mm -hmm. uh, and brought to the tiny island. A standard winter population of 5,000 people and on the day I was there, there were at least 3,000 people who had arrived in the last few days. The, the island is under the most enormous pressure, but um, we shouldn't have situations like this. We shouldn't have people drowning in the sea. We should be ashamed of ourselves. We should be ashamed of ourselves in the way that we continue to treat uh, our Roma and traveller brothers and sisters. We've been looking back a lot in Ireland, for instance, recently uh, around things. How did that happen? The industrial schools, the Magdalene laundries. How could we let that happen under our noses? I think in a future generation, we'll say that about Roman travellers. How could we have tolerated uh, the conditions and situations that they find themselves in? This is not uniquely Irish. The whole of Europe has to wake up to this and get serious. Uh, And there's a number of other areas. Um, And then there's the new threats. Uh, There's the threat of not getting our response to AI right. Uh, this is one that preoccupies me at the moment. Well, this is what I wanted to go on to talk to talk to you about because I think you were speaking at the IIEA yesterday yes. on that subject, and you're concerned about the ramifications of artificial intelligence for for human rights. Can you give us some specific concerns that you have in that regard? Yeah. Well, look, first, I'm in awe of mm. AI and its power, for, its potential power for good. AI properly marshaled 
can be transformative for the better for our societies uh, in a way that is astonishing and should be embraced and welcomed. But the more powerful anything, the more dangerous it is. Uh, and the risk side by side with the potential, the risks are enormous. Uh, and we have to be very careful. We need to regulate them. We need to regulate them now. We need to control the technology. And there's a lot of initiatives um, in the European Union. We're far advanced in the negotiation of an AI Act. The Council of Europe has begun the negotiation of an AI treaty. Uh, and it's it's very important that human rights be embedded at the heart of these initiatives. Not because hum we just say human rights for human rights sake, but because the technology is so impactful for human well-being uh, uh, that, that therefore we have to ensure that respect for humanity through the language of human rights is embedded at the heart of the regulation. Do you think it is policeable? I mean, do you, you know, given the extraordinary power of this technology, I mean, you only need one rogue actor or one rogue state. Can it be contained? Yes, it can. Okay. Uh, the, the technology is invented by humans. It's controlled by humans. It's administered by humans. It's put to purposes that humans find beneficial. And so we can control those humans through regulation. Uh, I, I'm absolutely convinced of this. We also, in my agency, through our research, repeatedly find that when you drill down what the risks are in practice, they look eminently controllable. Um, uh, so take, for example, uh, the um, risk of discrimination. That is ultimately about dirty data. And so the solution is clean the data. It is about bias in the algorithm. So the solution is expose the content of the algorithm and fix it. This is all doable stuff, but it requires energy. It requires a big investment of resources. It requires getting beyond the mythology of AI. And it involves challenging and demolishing such myths as that a, a commitment to human rights will stifle innovation. It's not the case. It, it, what it will do is it'll promote trust. Uh, in and a more trustworthy AI is one that our people are going to buy into more. Unfortunately, I think we're coming to the end of our time, and I think I may have I'd forgotten. Say Michael doesn't have time to read a book, does he? <laughs> Probably not. I, I, I don't think I mentioned to you uh, what our the last question we normally ask. So, but um, we do normally ask all of our, our our interviewees if they can recommend either a book or a film that they would recommend to our listeners who are generally lawyers or law students or people with an interest in the law. Is there anything that leaps to mind? Oh, gosh, you, you, didn't, you didn't prepare me oh, for I'm this. I'm sorry that's, about that. uh, that's kind of thrown at me. Um, I'd have to think about it. Um, I thought you were going to ask me what my current favourite book is. Um, that, well, that, that would that do, will yeah. Do. Uh, I've just finished reading uh, the amazing book about the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Radetzky March. Uh, it's already 100 years old, that book, but I advise anybody anywhere to read it for a, a superb depiction in micro uh, uh, of the collapse of the macro uh, in a manner in which you feel it could happen anywhere at any time if we're not very vigilant. And the name of the author? Uh, so the Radetzky... Roth, Roth. Roth. Thank goodness I remember. <laughs> Roth, R-O-T-H. Great. All right, Michael, that's 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 been fascinating. Actually, that's, that's one I would find very interesting. So thank you for that recommendation. Michael O'Flaherty, thank you for coming in and being a guest on the Fifth Court today. My thanks to you. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Michael O'Flaherty, the head of the European Union's Fundamental Rights Agency, who came in and talked all about his wonderful career 
And the impact that that man has had internationally is huge, Mark. Yeah, I think what came out of the interview was just how important it is to gather the information and that, you know, that he certainly feels that the work of the agency really informs the legislation, it informs the case law, that they're able to to actually show how how human rights works on the ground. Absolutely. And the passion to try and improve things. It just, it rang out. It absolutely did. Okay, uh, before we go, I would like to say a big thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroin, and to the Dublin South Podcast Studios and Lee Brennan for his wonderful work in recording this show. So for me, Peter Leonard. Myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.